Thank you, Adam, for reading for us Revelation 8. We're actually going to be covering Revelation 8 and 9 this morning. I think you'll see why we're covering two chapters as we work our way through it. This is our 13th week in the book of Revelation and looking forward to diving into Revelation 8 and 9 this morning, which I have entitled Trumpeting the World's End. Now, we need to remember that as we've talked about um, and walked through the book of Revelation, that Revelation is not necessarily arranged chronologically. Okay, it's not this happens in history, and then this happens in history, and then this happens in history. Now, it does occur chronologically in the sense that it's the order in which John is receiving the vision. So he says, after this I saw, and after this I saw. Well, that's clearly chronological. But the events that he sees, the vision, the contents of the vision, are not necessarily arranged in any, any sort of chronological order. Rather, the visions are arranged cyclically. They come back again and again to the same themes. They're like a spiraling story that reinforces and builds toward a climax but covers a lot of the same ground again and again. In chapters 6 and 7, we saw the seven seals, and now here in chapters 8 and 9, we see the beginning of the seven trumpets, and we'll soon see the seven bowls. And these seals and trumpets and bowls, all seven, are repeating symbols of God's judgment upon a world full of sin. And they begin progressing in intensification even as they cover the same ground, all leading up to the final judgment and the return of Christ and uh, his kingdom coming in its fullness. Think of a car hitting first gear, second gear, third gear, ramping up in intensity as the speed accelerates. Now, it's the same car, it's the same road, but it's different gears. Remember that Revelation is not so much interested in answering the questions that we're often interested in answering. We come to Revelation often wanting to know the how and the when. Revelation's not interested in answering the how and the when. Revelation is primarily interested with answering the who and the why. Who and the why, not how and the when. And as you know, the book of Revelation is really built in its center about around these three series of seven judgments. Seven judgments known as the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and then finally the seven bowls. Now, according to the principle that we've been walking through in this, in this book, the, the principle of interpretation, that we, that we call recapitulation or, or cyclical interpretation, the seven seal judgments together with the seven trumpet and seven bowl judgments are descriptive of the events that happen throughout human history between the two comings of Christ. Each of these sections provides a series of progressively parallel visions that increase in their scope and intensity as we draw nearer and nearer to the consummation. So remember the illustration that's kind of been guiding our thinking is cameras on a football field. Right? We could be looking at a game from different, different angles. We could see it up from the Goodyear blimp flying above and looking down or a drone flying over the field, or we could look at it from the perspective of field level, or if technology allowed and our stomachs could handle it, from the perspective of a quarterback as he's running the play. All those would give you a different view of the game, but you're still watching the same game. So it is with these seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bold judgments. Now, as we saw with the seven seals, we, we, in Revelation chapter 6, 
it was largely focused on the church's experience as these temporal judgments of God are unleashed upon the world between the first and second comings of Christ. We talked about spiritual judgment in the form of deception that would come upon the world. There would be people propagating different Jesuses or different alternative spiritualities, different ways to be right with God, and it would come upon all people. And we're seeing that play out. We've seen it play out throughout human history. And then we also saw political judgments in the form of war, where rage and fighting would occupy the world until Christ comes again. We saw economic judgments, like famine, where countries and peoples would have a lot of abundance of things they don't necessarily need, but would lack the things they really need. I read one quote this week speaking to that reality where the writer said, the brutal fact is that this, the average person living in a Western country increasingly has nothing to live for. He or she has little family, few friends, no neighborhood, no community, and certainly no Christ. He or she exists mostly as a ritual of economic activity, a number on a balance sheet. That, brothers and sisters, is the black rider riding on across human history. No wonder as a culture we're anxiety-ridden and depression-prone and fear-driven. The black rider's riding on, and our souls are famished and empty. But not only do we have spiritual and political and economic troubles as a result of the judgment of God on human sin, but we also have physical death. No matter the advancement in our technology or the volume of our medical research or the size of our hospitals, we will not end death, period. No chance. It will ride on and death will end us all because it is the judgment of God. The wages of sin is death. So when we looked at the seven seals, and those are just the first four, but as we walk through those seals and Christ opening the scroll, revealing the events that are going to transpire in human history, revealing to the church what it's expected to experience, we come now to this seven trumpets. Now, again, it's covering the same ground, but intensifying the portrait and showing it from a different angle. The seven trumpets are not so much dealing with the types of judgment that God dishes out across human history, but the characteristics of that judgment. And if the seven seals give us a window into the church's experience, the seven trumpets give us a window into the experience of those outside the church. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. And it is a vivid and dark and dismal picture which is designed to show us our need for the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, I want us to take a look at four lessons about God's judgment that we learn from these two chapters, Revelation 8 and 9. And again, these forms of judgment, or these characteristics of God's judgment, are specifically looking at the experience of those outside the church. Whereas the seals look primarily with what can Christians expect Remember, the seal judgments were patterned after Jesus' words in Matthew 24, where Jesus told his disciples, hey, this is what it's going to be like. Don't expect heaven on earth yet. It's going to get rough. Well, this, in the seven trumpets of Revelations 8 and 9, Jesus speaks and reveals to the apostle John what it's going to be like in terms of God's temporal judgment for unbelievers while they live on the earth. So four lessons. Let's look at them one at a time. Number one. God's judgment is vengeful. God's judgment is vengeful. And 
the first five verses. Now, in keeping with the close association of prayers and incense that we've already seen in the book of Revelation, John sees angels with censers full of incense. And these censers contain the prayers of the saints that rise before God. But we're told here during the opening of this seventh seal, remember chapter seven is like a break between the first six seals and the seventh. And we're gonna see the same thing happen here in Revelation eight and nine. There's a break right before the seventh one to give us a picture of comfort and security for the church in the midst of this as we saw last week. Revelation seven is full of comfort and promise for the church even as these judgments of God are unfolding uh, upon the world. But here we meet silence. And that may occur to facilitate the hearing of the prayers of the saints. Our great God is so attentive to the prayers of his people that he's willing to say, shh, in heaven to hear them. However, while I like that idea, I don't think it's altogether uh, consistent with what we read of silence in the Old Testament concerning when God... Uh, is executing judgment. So it's more likely that this, this silence is serving as a calm before the storm as God's judgment approaches. In fact, Zephaniah 1.7 equates silence with preparation for God's judgment. So now that we've seen the seven seals and the reassurance to God's people in Revelation 7 that they're going to be okay, there's this silence in heaven as this next unfolding wave of judgment is preparing to be announced. Now, the prayers that are mentioned here, the prayers of the saints, are specifically for the judgment on the Lord's enemies, which we will see unfold in the seven trumpets. In some sense, these prayers cause the judgment to occur. It's in response to the prayers of believers that the angel takes the censer from the altar of incense, fills it with fire from the altar, and then throws it down on the earth. The prayers of the righteous are indeed powerful and effective. God assures his people, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, as we read in Romans chapter 12, that God's people who are facing significant suffering, remember Revelation 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches, God's people are facing significant suffering and God reassures them that he hears their prayers and he will execute judgment on their enemies. Brothers and sisters, it may often seem that our prayers are not being answered, that they're being offered in vain, but Revelation assures us that God does hear prayer. The prayers for justice that the martyrs cried out for in Revelation 6, 9 through 11, how long, O Lord? till you execute judgment on the earth, till you avenge our blood, those prayers will not be ignored. Justice will be served. The wicked will be judged. Our prayers make a difference in how God acts in history. They are one of the means God has ordained to accomplish his purposes. So, brothers and sisters, behold the privilege of prayer the privilege of being involved in what God is doing in the world. And that this judgment that is being unleashed on the world is in large measure a response to the cries of God's people for justice. So, in many ways, God's temporal judgments on the world are his defense of his people, his, 
is saying to his people, I am with you. I have not forgotten you. Your name and your cause, which is my name and my cause, has been heard and will be avenged. So that's the first thing we learn about God's judgment. Secondly, God's judgment is global. God's judgment is global in verses 6 through 12. And I'm not rereading these verses because of Adam's helpful reading for them and to save a little bit of time as we get into Revelation 9, we're going to be reading quite a bit more scripture as we walk through that chapter. So second point, God's judgment is global. Throughout scripture, trumpets were blown, and we see here the the seven angels being given seven trumpets. So again, seven being figurative, all angels. This is a a complete picture. This is a worldwide, full, complete announcement. Throughout scripture, trumpets are blown to warn of coming judgment or to announce victorious salvation. And Jesus specifically says in the gospels that with a trumpet, he will gather his people, all of his people from judgment and save them upon his return. So trumpets symbolize both judgment and salvation all throughout scripture. Now, if you were paying attention as Adam read for us verses 6 through 12 and the unfolding of these four trumpet blasts, you will see uh, uh, similarities between the trumpet judgments and the plagues on Egypt. And you're meant to see that because, again, John's thinking and what he's seeing in these visions is steeped in the Old Testament. He's relating everything he's seeing to what he read in the Old Testament. And the plagues that God poured out upon Egypt are formative for what he views here in these trumpet judgments. Most of the images in these trumpet judgments, like hail and blood and darkness, are taken almost directly from God's judgments on Pharaoh and the Egyptians for holding his people in captivity in the Exodus. God sent those plagues as judgments for the sin of Egypt in oppressing God's people. And so what what John's seeing here and what the church would have heard in hearing this vision is, oh, God avenged his people there. He's going to avenge us now, or he will, just as he did at the Exodus in taking care of us and hearing our cries and answering our prayers and delivering us from this sinful oppression. So we as God's people will experience the same thing. So that's what they're getting in these seven trumpet announcements. The other Old Testament story behind these trumpets is Joshua and the battle of Jericho. You'll remember that God commanded seven priests to sound seven trumpets for seven days, at the end of which they would shout and the walls of Jericho would come down and the Israelites would officially enter the promised land. The imagery here is eerily similar to seven trumpet blasts, progressively and ultimately pronouncing judgment upon sinners and victory for God's people as they enter into heaven. So no doubt the early Christians hearing this vision and us hearing it now should be comforted knowing that just as God brought the walls down so that we could enter the promised land, just as God sent the plagues upon Egypt, so he will take care of us now. Joel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, blow a trumpet. In Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. So it's announcing this judgment that is coming. Now let's look at these four trumpets here in 
Revelation 8, verses 6 through 12, and talk about them briefly one at a time. In the first trumpet, in verses 6 and 7, you have hail and fire coming from heaven, burning up a third of the earth and the trees and the grass. In the second trumpet, Revelation 8, 8 and 9, a mountain is hurled into the sea, destroying a third of the world's oceans and all of its life and trade as the waters turn into blood. Now, can you begin to see the parallels here between the Egyptian plagues and these seven trumpet judgments with the hail in the first trumpet and now the water turning to blood in the second trumpet? In the third trumpet, in verses 10 and 11, a meteor-like star falls from heaven, inflicting the earth's rivers with poison and causing death to those who drink from them. And then in verse 12, we get the fourth trumpet, which is a third of the sun, the moon, and the stars being struck so that they provide a third less light, which is taking us back to the plague of darkness inflicted on the Egyptians in the book of Exodus, which was the final plague before the Passover. So here, with the first four trumpets, we have a global picture of God's judgment. We have a figurative picture of everything in creation, from the land, to the ocean, to the rivers, to the skies, systematically being destroyed. God's judgment is touching every sphere of the world. That's the point. It's global. The meaning is clear. God uses the earth, the seas, the rivers, and the skies to execute his judgment. The picture is of creation itself. Remember in Genesis 1, God said, let there be land and rivers and skies and water, and now all that's coming to nothing. Because God's judgment is a tearing down of what sin has brought under the curse in this creation so that it could be built anew in the new heavens and the new earth, which we see later in the book of Revelation. So what God is saying here is my judgment is global. I control everything. And I'm using the elements, the land, the ocean, the rivers, the sky, to warn people that there is a God in heaven to whom they must answer. Each trumpet blast is a warning Repent! Repent! Turn from your sin. Turn to God. It's a reminder that we live in a fallen world and that the whole creation is under the curse. And it's groaning. And it's heaving. And that these judgments are just a foretaste of what's to come at the final judgment. So those are the first two things we learn about God's judgment that it's vengeful, that is, it's a response to the prayers of God's people for justice. Also, it's global. It affects everything in his creation. Thirdly, God's judgment is fearful. God's judgment is fearful. And here's where we're going to get into chapter 9. So we have systematic physical judgments across creation, and then we encounter the fifth and sixth trumpets, in chapter 9. And in these fifth and sixth trumpets, we see terrifying judgments on humanity. The sh the, it focuses away now from God's general judgment on creation, the land, the skies, the rivers, the water. 
Skip shifts away from that now to human beings. Remember, this is the same thing that happens in the seal judgments, right? It starts with creation and then it moves to people. Remember, it starts with famine, or war, deception, war, and famine, and then it moves into martyrdom and death. It starts to affect people. Well, same thing here with the trumpet judgments. It moves from creation to the creatures, to humanity itself. And the imagery here, brothers and sisters, is frightening. It's some of the most terrifying, gripping imagery in the entire book of Revelation. Terrifying is the right word to use. God's terrifying judgments on humanity are for humanity's idolatry and immorality. And it's not just judgment on the physical creation anymore. It's judgment on people. So I want you to look here at Revelation 8.13 and see the shift that takes place. John writes, Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. It's getting worse. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. He's saying, you ain't seen nothing yet. You think this is God's judgment? You ain't seen nothing yet. Let me show you in chapter 9 just how bad it gets. And I want you to see and appreciate the fact that the loud voice as the angel flew, or the eagle flew overhead, says, whoa, whoa, whoa. What's the significance of that? What does that make you think of? Does anybody think of Isaiah 6? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What, what's, what's that all about? Remember in Isaiah 6, when, when the angels cry out, holy, 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 it's thrice holy, it's infinite holiness, it's it's, it's, it's beyond comprehension. God's not just holy, but he's holy, holy, holy. He's the maximum of holy. Well, this is the opposite. This is terrible, terrible, terrible. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Curse, curse, curse. You think blessing, blessing, blessing? Speaking of this, Ephesians chapter 1, we are given every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then in Ephesians 1, it unfolds the blessings the Father gives us and the blessings the Son gives us, and then the blessings the Spirit gives us. We have this threefold blessing in Ephesians 1. It's the complete opposite of this. None of that. None of that for these people. Woe, woe, woe. It's almost as if they're receiving the curse from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All three speaking profoundly of their eventual judgment and damnation. So let's tread carefully and soberly as we look through at these verses in Revelation chapter 9. Notice this. Who is this judgment coming on? One more thing from Revelation 8.13 before we get into chapter 9. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. Is that everybody? No, it isn't everyone. Because earth dwellers, or those who dwell on earth in Revelation is a phrase that is uniquely and exclusively reserved for unbelievers. It's only talking about those who do not belong to Christ. Those who dwell on the earth is not everybody that's living on the earth. It's those who specifically have turned away from God and are living for this world. It's those on whom these three woes are pronounced. 
the three woes that proceed from the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh trumpets. So let's read, first of all, Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 11, and see the trumpet that the fifth angel blows. Verse 1, chapter 9, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Just think about that. It's darkening everything coming out of this bottomless pit. Verse 3, then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree. So notice this isn't focusing on creation. But only those who, people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. In other words, earth dwellers, unbelievers. Verse 5, they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days... People will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Verse 7, in appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon or Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. Now, the vision that we receive in the fifth trumpet is demons being released from hell to torture unbelievers as a violent depiction of God's judgment. With the fifth trumpet, the sun is again darkened, again, a picture of spiritual darkness. And for five months, remember again, the plagues in Egypt, from the pits of hell, these locusts begin to terrorize unbelievers. Smoke rises from the abyss as the bottomless pit of hell is unlocked. It's the smoke of deception and delusion and sin and sorrow. As one commentator says, it's the picture of moral darkness and degradation that is constantly belching up out of hell. Legions of hell are unleashed upon the earth in the form of locusts. Again, this is symbolic, okay? This is not... This is figurative language. It's apocalyptic literature. We're not to literally think of specifically locusts with like stingers that, have, that are flying around like scorpions. No. The picture is violent attack. But these, they look like horses prepared for battle with human faces and lion-like teeth and breastplates of iron. They come with the speed of chariots and they sting with tails like scorpions. They torment believers for a set period of time under the direct authority of Satan, or one of his lieutenants, and all this takes place under the ultimate authority of God who is sending this judgment. 
These demonic locusts are fierce and horrific, and they cause people to want to die. Now, what we see here is the effects of sin on humanity. How sin brings anguish and torment into people's lives. Sin is pleasurable for a moment, but there's a sting in its tail, and it always results in grief. When we see human beings being controlled by self-pity and anger and lust and jealousy, full of unhappiness and raging against life, it's part of the judgment of God. They're under Satan's dominion. Their lives are slowly unraveling. And pretty, sure, pretty soon, the threat is gone, and the only thing left is insanity. Everyone in hell is insane. For there's nothing more insane than for you to worship yourself and hate God. Giving people over to their sin, brothers and sisters, is what's being pictured in this judgment. These locusts are, are an army from hell that's being sent out to numb people to God. To make them infected and prone to wander so that they don't come to the Lord. You say, what in the world is going on here? It's Romans 1 is what's going on here. Brothers and sisters, giving people over to sin is not the result of the judgment of God. It is the judgment of God. When people are enslaved to their sins, it's because they are under the judgment of God. And unless God acts in powerful grace and grants them mercy, they will not escape it, just as we wouldn't have. And this is part of God's judgment on the human race. This anguish and torment that comes upon the human race as a result of sin and demonic activity that is behind and inflaming and encouraging that sin. But it gets worse. It gets worse. Look at Revelation chapter 9, verse 12. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Verse 13, Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode on them. They, were, they wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, and their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound." See, this second woe is introduced in the form of the sixth trumpet as a third of mankind is wiped out across the earth. Again, this doesn't mean that chronologically this happens next and then this happens next and then this happens next. The imagery is just building 
It's meant to capture our imagination and overwhelm our senses with the reality of God's powerful judgment. And in this blood-curdling vision, we see a cavalry of 200 million, literally myriads of myriads, thousands upon thousands of demonic war horses that are released across the earth with breastplates like fire and heads like lions and tails like serpents and smoke coming out of their mouths, they come to kill and destroy. The meaning is clear. Throughout history, from the first to the second coming of Christ, Christ will afflict his enemies with physical and spiritual disaster. That's what will happen, and it will often result in death. Remember, just as the the seal judgments ended in some form or were trending towards physical death. So these trumpet judgments are trending toward physical death. They get worse and worse and worse and worse until people die as a result of them. Brothers and sisters, time does not allow me to delve deeply into each one of these things, but I, I, I wanted to cover this just to, be, just to overwhelm us with the reality of God's judgments and how terrible and frightening they are and to get them all in and to see them from the whole spectrum of Revelation 8 and 9 with 6 and 7 in the background. With those things in the background, we come finally, fourthly, to God's judgment, not just being vengeful, global, not just affecting and, and being fearful, but God's judgment being merciful. Look at verses 20 and 21. And these are some of the saddest verses in the book of Revelation. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. Of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or talk. Nor did they repent of their murders, or their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. This tells you something of why God is sending all these judgments to begin with. That people would repent. Right? It's what Jesus said in Luke 13 when he was asked about the tower that fell. Right? He said, Lord, the tower of Siloam that fell and killed those people, was that God's judgment? You know, were they worse sinners? Is that why they got it? Jesus says, no, this was, the reason that happened is so that you would repent. Because unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. And that's what these seven tr trumpets are blasting out to an unbelieving world. The, the calamities of the land and the sky and the sea and the rivers, the heaving, the natural disasters, the issues that are facing our country, the physical, the political, the economic, all that is shouting, this ain't your home. It's going to get worse. Death, funerals, addictions, problems, troubles are all meant to call us away from sin and to Christ. Don't miss this. This is the sad part. Despite God's merciful call to repentance by trumpeting again and again the judgments that are coming temporally on the world, despite the harmful and destructive effects of idolatry and immorality upon people's lives in this world, people continue to trust in themselves. They continue to trust in the things of the world. 
Unbelievers here are depicted like Pharaoh who stubbornly, despite judgment after judgment after judgment, plague after plague after plague, continues to resist God in sinful rebellion. God sends the judgments. He sends the judgments. He sends the judgments. They still trust in themselves. They may have a little religiosity every now and then, just like Pharaoh did. Oh, I'm so sorry, God. Oh, I'm so sorry, God. Change my life. Change my life. I want right back to it. Two days, three days, three months, four years later. No decisive change. No conversion. Just temporal worldly sorrow. This is the picture of mankind, brothers and sisters. Men and women who know and see and feel the effects of sin, yet go back, running back to sin time and time again, refusing to repent. Sin is killing them, and they refuse to turn. Robert Mount's commentator says, Nowhere will you find a more accurate picture of sinful humanity pressed to the extreme. One would think that the terrors of God's wrath would bring rebels to their knees. Not so. Past the point of no return, they respond to greater punishment with increased rebellion, such as sinful nature untouched and unmoved by the mercies of God. There is no more tragic picture of human depravity than this. To refuse to repent even in the face of your own death. You would rather die than repent. You'd rather go to hell than repent. But because repentance means to agree with God that what one has done is evil, human beings would rather remain in obstinate refusal and stubborn pride than admit that they did anything wrong. And yet, God is merciful. All throughout these seven trumpet judgments, God is pronouncing mercy. How so? Did you notice that in every single one of the trumpet judgments, the destruction is limited in the devastation it brings upon the earth? In chapter 8, verse 7, a third of the earth is affected. In chapter 8, verse 8, a third of the sea became blood. In chapter 8, verse 10, a third of the rivers and a third of the springs of water were judged. In chapter 8, verse 12, it's a third of the sun, moon, and stars that are darkened. The repetition of this fraction one-third is important. He's trying to be, he's not trying to be mathematically precise. All right, that's not the point. Is to say, it's exactly 33 and a third percent of the earth that's being affected by this. His point is that the judgments are partial. They are preliminary to the final and universal judgment that comes at the end of history. As one commentator put it, the trumpets are not sounding doom, they're sounding warning. The majority of mankind is allowed to survive being shown God's wrath against sin and giving the opportunity to repent. Brothers and sisters, in conclusion, as we look across the vast expanse of human history since the first coming of Christ, we see the concrete and all too real effects of God's wrath against human sin, idolatry, immorality, and unbelief. We see widespread famine, devastating tornadoes, floods, infectious diseases, war, psychological and emotional torment, pollution of our natural resources, and the list could go on and on and on seemingly without end. And to what purpose? To warn mankind. 
and that God will not ignore the defilement of his creation and of his glory or the callous disregard for his mercy and long suffering. Why do we have these trumpets? God is giving the world mercy. He is offering forgiveness. Turn from your sin in the physical destruction, in the spiritual deception, and in the natural death all around us. We are seeing the effects of sin. Oh, see the effects of sin in the world, John says. Whether it's terror or tumors, personal disease or physical destruction or painful death, see the effects of sin and repent. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the point. Repent, be reconciled to God, because this ain't nothing. Wait until the final judgment. This, if this won't induce you to repent, nothing will. Luke 16 says, not even if Jesus Christ himself were to rise from the dead and stand here and preach this sermon for me, that would not change your heart. When Lazarus and the story of Lazarus in Luke 16, which I hope to preach this summer, preach several sermons on that particular parable, I think it's appropriate in light of what we've considered in Revelation to camp there a little bit. But the whole point of that parable is here, here we get this vision of Lazarus in, in Abraham's bosom or in heaven and then, and then the rich man being afflicted in hell and, oh, if, and then the rich man's just saying, oh, please go back and just tell, tell my people not to come into this torment. And Jesus says, they got Moses and the prophets. If they don't listen to them, they won't be convinced if somebody rises from the dead. If the Bible won't do it, if this won't do it, friends, nothing will do it. Nothing will do it. It's the only hope we have for our friends and family who are yet outside of Christ. We got prayer. We got the ministry of the word. That's all we got. And we need to lean into those because those are the tools the Spirit is pledged to use. We, we, can't, we can't give them enough miracles. We can't say, look at this, look at this, look at this. The vast majority of people who saw all of Jesus' miracles perished in their sins. They weren't converted. They were struck by, wow, that's a pretty cool feat, you feeding all those people like that. How'd you turn that water into wine? That's pretty good. But they weren't converted. And so, brothers and sisters, may God in his mercy do two things for us in conclusion. May he give us great joy knowing that we have been saved out of this. Not because of anything that we did. Not because we're better, we're smarter, we came from the right back background, we got the right spiritual pedigree, we were raised in the right family, we heard the right sermons. None of that. It's because God gave us mercy. That was it. He opened our eyes and he changed our hearts. We would have been just like these people. And so what you need to do is read, this could have been my spiritual autobiography. This could have been the way my life went. And it wasn't. And let that move you to compassion toward people who are yet outside of Christ. So that we, having been touched and realized what we were saved from, might reach out to others in compassion for what they too might be saved from. Let's pray. Father, thank you. It's, it's hard to thank you for visions like this because they're so terrifying, but Lord, they're, they're of you and, and they're for our good. And so we do thank you. They, they break our hearts because we have people we love. We have neighbors and family and coworkers and
friends that we love, children that we love, that we want so much to not ever have to face these temporal or eternal judgments. And so, God, all we ask is just like you've taught us to pray, in wrath, remember mercy. Lord, in your, in your word, you say that the Lord is patient, not wishing that any, any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so everyone in here, hearing my voice this morning or on live stream, Lord, you are saying, I don't want you to die. I don't want you to perish. I want you to come to me. And Lord, so may this vision move some of us, all of us who are yet outside of Christ, into Christ. May we realize he's our only hope. He's the only one who can wash us from our sins by his blood. He's the only one who can robe us in a, in a robe of perfect righteousness. He's the only one who can cleanse us and change us and renew us and transform us from the kingdom of darkness into a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. So would you do that? And for those of us who are in Christ, may we with fresh gratitude say to you, I will bless the Lord and his praise will be continually in my mouth. He delivered me from the pit and put me on a rock. And so may we respond with joy even as we sing in response to what we've heard this morning for your glory, knowing that you have been so good to us. I will praise the Lord for he has dealt bountifully with me. Come all you who fear God and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.